This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. So just before, just before Sue steps over, um, I'm just going to read the, the passage for her because it's, it's well. Um, so we're still in, in Luke, uh, Luke 19, and it's uh, 11 through to 27. The parable of the miners. Minus, not miners. <laughs> now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten miners, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your miner has earned ten miners. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five miners. Likewise he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your miner, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect where you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten miners. But they said to him, Master, he has ten miners. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all here today. Well, we're in Luke 19, as you know, and we've already had two um, um, sermons on this uh, this um, chapter. Um, let's just pray. Sorry, I meant to do that before we started. Father God, I just pray you'd open up this word to us today. Father, we just um, stand before you, and uh, you know our hearts, Lord God. 
And we just pray, Heavenly Father, that you would move on our hearts today. Yield, help our hearts to yield to you, Lord God, in whatever you are talking to us about. And it will be different things for different people, Lord Jesus. But Father, we pray that we would hear your word. We'd have ears that are open, minds that understand, hearts that are soft and open to the move of your spirit. Thank you, Father God. Amen. Okay, so this is the third message um, with Jesus being in Jericho. Now, some of you might know that I actually had the privilege of going to the Holy Land um, earlier than in this year with Dave, and um, we sort of scooted by Jericho. We didn't really, we, you can't always go in, apparently. It's one of those areas that um, is not always open to everyone. But just a little bit of situation about Jericho. It's, it's at the, the top of the Dead Sea, and it's actually nearly 300 metres below sea level itself. It's in the plain of the Rift Valley. And from Jericho, you sort of look up, and 3,000 feet above, or 1,000 metres, is, is Jerusalem. So it's a long way in height terms between these two places. And Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and he was just about to take that journey, that long journey up that long hill, um, to that crucifixion week, that Passover week. And Jesus is saying in this very first verse, verse 11, the reason for the parable that he is about to give. You know, he started out in Luke 9, I think, as as David pointed out to us last week. He's been on a long journey from Luke 9, all the way down through from the Galilee, through Judea, and he's now arriving at um, Jerusalem. This is the, like the culmination of his three years of ministry. He might have even gathered quite a following on the way as people have received healings and miracles and the word of God into their hearts and minds. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Josephus does tell us in the history books that he wrote that um, for a Passover, there could be as many as two million pilgrims congregating on the city of Jerusalem at this time. So it was busy, busy, busy. There were lots of people. And Jesus was aware that there was this, um, this sense that the kingdom was just about to come. The um, Jewish people were absolutely desperate to be liberated from the Romans. They were under the oppression of the Roman army. And they thought their Messiah was going to set them free. Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned this just in passing, but, you know, even after the resurrection, they still hadn't forgotten this principle. And in Acts, you know, when Jesus is saying, stay here until the power of God comes, they interject in the middle of that little speech, are you then going to get rid of the Romans for us? <laughs> they were fixated with this. And this part of this parable is to manage their expectations and to tell them that things aren't going to happen quite how they thought. So, he says this parable. Um, They heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Okay? And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So, here we have it. A nobleman going to a far country staying there, receiving a kingdom, and then coming back. Who is this nobleman? It's Jesus. Jesus is the nobleman, and he's telling everybody who's listening to him, I'm about to leave 
and go a long way away for quite a while. It's a far country. It's going to take me a long time to go there, and it's going to take me a long time to come back. And while I'm in this far country, I'm going to receive the kingdom, and then I'm going to return. So this is really interesting, isn't it? Because as we read this, we recognize that this would have been totally out of step with what they were expecting. They were expecting the wham-bam Messiah to come establish the kingdom, get rid of the Romans, and the Jews would be liberated from more than sin, from the Romans as well. Now, the Pharisees asked Jesus in Luke 17, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus answered them, very important answer that. He says, the kingdom of God doesn't come visibly. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God comes to each one of us when we put our trust in Jesus, when our heart is changed and he reigns in our hearts. That's when the kingdom of God comes. You know, the kingdom of God is here now in this room and in our nation, in pockets, where the Christians are. Where the, that's where the kingdom of God is. You know, as Colossians tells us, 1.13, it tells us there's two kingdoms on this planet at the moment. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of darkness. And God has delivered us from that power of darkness that came in through Adam. Satan is said to be the god of this world. His kingdom is ruling on this world. But the kingdom of God here is now in the church. The power of God is present on this planet but at times it does seem invisible. And the third point Jesus makes in this verse is he said he's going to come back. The nobleman is going to come back. And many scriptures talk of the second coming of Jesus. It seems like it's been a long time, doesn't it? 2,000 years. But we can be sure that he is coming back. His first advent seemed to take a long time. And his second advent similarly, has taken a long time, but we can be sure it's going to happen. Just a couple of scriptures about this. In Acts 1.11, when Jesus goes up to heaven in the ascension, the disciples are standing around, sort of gazing up, looking at him going up in the cloud, and two angels appear and say, hey, he's going to come back in the way you saw him go. So the implication there is he's going to come back to the Mount of Olives, perhaps on a, descending on a cloud, and Zechariah 14 says just that, that Jesus will set his foot on the Mount of Olives when he returns. Jesus himself, when he, when he spoke, made it clear there was going to be an interval of time, that it wasn't all going to go. As we were talking about earlier, Vicky was saying, things just sometimes don't happen as you think they're going to happen. And Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples and prepare us for this, this wait and a great example of this is when he spoke in his hometown of Nazareth. You can find the passage in Isaiah 61. But what he said was subtly different. It says in the Bible that he went into Nazareth and he stood up to read on the Sabbath day and he was handed the book of Isaiah. So he turned to this chapter, chapter 61, and he said this in Luke. It's recorded for us. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Full stop. He stopped. And yet, I think you can see on the board behind me, 
The second half of that verse says, the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. So there's something coming, and this is a lot of what this message is about. There's There's a day of reckoning coming for the world. God is coming back to take back the world that he made, that Jesus made. You know, he's going to get rid of this person who's squatting in his territory, the devil, and get it back. But at the moment, we're in this period, which sometimes we refer to as the period of grace. It's, it's referred to here, here as the acceptable year of the Lord. The Amplified Bible talks about it as a time of favor. And you know, part of the message here today, to anybody in the room and anybody who's listening online, is come to Jesus in the time of favor. Because there is a time of vengeance coming when the chance to be reconciled to God through Jesus is going to end. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Okay, so this is the period we're in. The nobleman is still away, still getting his kingdom. But before he went, he called 10 of his servants and he gave to them 10 miners and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So this verse tells us about two clear groups of people. We have his servants, and I believe this is a picture of the church. And he tells us, and I'm going to go into that in a bit more detail in a minute, to engage in business with this one miner that he gives us. And then we have this other group of people, the citizens. Now, this spoke directly to the Jews that were listening to him, because a lot of them were already plotting to kill him. They didn't want him to rule over them. And and yet, it extends through all time, doesn't it? Because there are people we know who do not want Jesus to rule over them. There are millions of people on this planet that at the moment do not want Jesus to rule over them. So we have two distinct groups of people that Jesus is talking to here. The church and the people that are not in his kingdom yet. And Lydia said to us last week, didn't she, very powerfully, that there's no third, there's no third group. There's no fence. You can't be sitting on the fence. If you haven't made a decision for Jesus, by default, you are in the other kingdom. So it's good for us to be aware of that. So let's just look again in more detail at verse 13. He called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 miners. Engage in business till I come, he said. So there's 10 servants and they all get one miner each. Now, what is a miner? A miner was equivalent to three months paid salary. So it's a tidy amount, but it's not going to last you for that long. So Jesus is saying you'll need to engage in business. You'll need to multiply this amount that I've given you. And so when I come back, I can see that you've made a profit. Now, there is a parable in Matthew 25 that's very, very similar, but it talks about talents, not miners, and they're given out according to people's gifting. So read that one as well, but I think it's talking about a slightly different situation. People are judged differently. 
we have to think about what is the minor. That's what the, pre the question was for me. I don't know if it is for you too. What is this minor? What does it represent? And I looked at quite a few commentaries this week, and uh, you might have a few suggestions, which you're welcome to shout out, and I can, um, I can um, mention it online as well. But I came up with these from my, my um, grafting. It could be the gospel message, because it's something that each one of us has been given, and it's equal for each one of us. It's, it's not given, it's not a talent or something that's, you know, like the ability to lead in worship or something. It's, it's something that each, we each have that's all identical. So what could it be? It could be the gospel message. We've all been given that seed of the gospel message um, to preach to other people. Another commentary said it could be the measure of faith that is given to every believer, spoken of in, in Romans 12. It says that God has given to every man the measure of faith. It's like when you go to a soup kitchen and a ladle comes out and you bring your bowl there and they dip in the ladle in, give you the ladle full, and then the next person gets the same ladle full. We all get a ladle full of faith. Could be that. Um, another suggestion is that it's, it's the ability to multiply the kingdom. The idea of growth is implicit in this um, verse, that engage in business. God is after, Jesus is after multiplication in some way. So have we got this, this um, message of salvation, this eternal life in us when we're born again, and we are encouraged to multiply that eternal life in some way, to grow the kingdom? I don't know. <laughs> but... I'm going to go with that one. <laughs> okay. So it goes on, verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, so we're looking now at the second coming of Jesus, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So this is a bit sobering for us, isn't it? We're all going to have to give account for what we did with our minor, all right? Whatever you think the minor is, perhaps you can spend some time with God talking about it this week. And you're going to get rewarded in proportion to your diligence and how much the minor has been multiplied. As David read for us, the person who got one minor and made 10 got 10 cities, and I'm going to go on to that in a minute as well. Five got five cities, and then the one that buried it I'll talk about in a minute as well. So there's a proportionate reflection in heaven of service or multiplication here on earth. And this is a subject that you don't get many sermons on. I can't think of one that I've heard, actually. So I'm now preaching to myself. <laughs> um, it's not an alien concept to the New Testament. This isn't the only time this concept comes up. And Paul had a, quite a lot to say to the Corinthian church about this very concept. Comes up in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So we're going to have a look at both of those and just fully understand what God is saying to us. So 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Okay, I'm going to unpack that in a minute. Just want to set some context. The judgment seat is the word in Greek, bima. 
And there's a photograph up on the board here of a beamer, the archaeological remains of a beamer, and it happens to be the one in Corinth. So when Jesus, when Paul, sorry, wrote, well, Jesus through Paul, <laughs> wrote about we must all appear before the beamer of Christ, they would have thought about this very um, platform, which would have been obviously complete and probably a lot higher than it is the remains is today. And it was a place the Romans built to make judgments, sort of judicial judgments, but also it's a place of reward. So if someone is running a race um, and the winner comes to this beamer, this, this rostrum, and receives his reward. And I want you to think about um, what I'm talking about today in the context of reward and not condemnation, okay? There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. God is out to reward us. And this parable gives us some clues as to how we can maximize our reward. So, um, as I say, I'll be going on to that in a little bit more. But just think about the idea that the Christian walk is like a race. We're all on a race. And Paul actually draws that analogy himself, again in Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Run your race strong, says Paul. Give everything you've got to this race, the race of life as a Christian. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They have special diets, don't they? And they're constantly exercising. They do not receive a perishable wreath. Um, sorry, they do not receive... They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, says Paul, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating me in the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, just thing I want to say here is that for us believers, this isn't the great white throne. For those of you that are thinking that God is somehow going to judge you, that is not what this message is saying, and it's not what the Bible says. The great white throne of judgment, that awesome place that we see at the end of the Bible, is for those people that do not know Jesus. If we have a look at John 5:24, it says that we have already passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So all those things that we're ashamed of, all those things we've done, which we really wish we hadn't, all those words we've said, all those actions, those are all on the cross with Jesus. So don't take that back. It's gone. All right? Jesus said that our sins are... He's forgotten them in, in Hebrews 10. He forgets our sins. In um, Psalm 103, it says, as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the amazing nature of our salvation. This is the amazing work of Jesus on the cross. We are, have passed from judgment. Judgment has already happened and it happened to Jesus. My judgment happened to Jesus because my sin was put on him. So don't take back anything. Okay? He became sin with our sin 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And we're accepted in God through Jesus, Ephesians 1.6. So what is this judgment about? What is this thing that we're going to be judged for? And it's about this gift, this, this um, minor. It's, it's what we do with what we've been given. It's not what happened before. Is that really clear to everyone in the room? Because it's a really important concept. Okay, so there is another scripture that puts a little bit more clarification on this judgment seat. And it's also, as I said, in in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians this time, chapter 3. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's what we've just said, really, isn't it? You've got to start with Jesus. All your sins are washed away. Now you build on that. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire." So these are the miners. This is the the stuff that we do with the the deposit that Jesus made in each of us. And the key here is that fire is going to test what sort or quality it is. So this is the crux of the matter. What's the sort or quality of what we do? So that's what I've spent a few minutes looking at. Because at the end of the day, we could be building things which we think are gold, silver, and precious stones, but they're not the right sort or quality. And um, this, as I, this could be a sermon in itself, okay? You could probably go through quite a lot of the Bible looking for things that were, um, were, were, were of value and things that weren't. So I'm just picking out one key idea, and it's love, okay? When we go to 1 Corinthians 13, we see that love is the key. Let's just read the first three verses together. Though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, I've become a sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all mysteries, all knowledge. I have all faith. I can move mountains. But I have not love. I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, I have not love. It profits me nothing. Now, we would uphold all of these amazing list of activities. Surely they're going to go through the fire. Surely they're going to receive a reward. But if it's not underpinned by this basic thing, love, then it profits us nothing. You know, sometimes, I'm sure you're not like this, but I question my own motivation. I question my heart attitude. And it's not pretty sometimes. You know, we look at, at, we're doing things, but we're doing things for our own self-exaltation. We're doing things so that we feel better. It's not great, but it's good to have spotted it. <laughs> so, Lord, have mercy on this, is my prayer. And Lord, help us to have these pure hearts that we were singing about earlier. Our hearts would be cleansed. There would be a, a move of the Holy Spirit that was visceral, that cleansed us and kept our hearts pure and our motivations pure. It reminds me a little bit of the Anglican liturgy, because I did grow up in the Anglican church. 
And in the middle of the liturgy, before you come for communion, it says, all things come from you, Father God, and of your own do we give you. And that's a really good thing to keep in mind, isn't it? Every, every expression that we have of God, we want that to come from him, and we're only giving it back to him. Okay, so... I've forgotten where I'm going. Sorry, I just need a minute. Okay, so I'm coming back now to the idea that we get a reward for all of our service, if that's how you're seeing this. I think it's got to involve service in some way. We've got to build the kingdom. We've got to love, and love involves service. We've got to serve each other. It can be a very practical thing, like setting up the stuff this morning, making tea and coffee, being on the welcome team, praying before the service. All of these things, the worship group, all of these things contribute to what's happened today. It's an expression of our love for one another. And of course, there's loads of activities in the wider world as well, where we love one another and we are thoughtful and caring and supportive of one another. So I'm just going to read a few scriptures as how God feels about that. So we've got Hebrews 6.10 here. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So if you're a bit worn out here this morning, if you had a bit of a stressy time setting up, which I know some people did this morning, then God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love to the body of Christ. Um, it says also that, you know, even a simple act like a cup of cold water doesn't go unnoticed with God. The smallest act, when done in his name and motivated by his love, um, you won't lose your reward. So don't despise just doing little things for people. Don't despise small gestures. Don't think you have to have a wham-bam ministry. It's actually the, the nuts and bolts of church life is made up of those little tiny things that we do for one another, those thoughtfulnesses, those caring things, motivated by God's love. And this one isn't up there, but um, it's in Galatians 6, and it says, um, Paul exhorts us to do good to all men when we have the opportunity, especially to believers in the household of faith. And it goes on to say, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So let us all encourage each other to persevere in this way. Okay, so I'm going to look particularly at the rewards now. Ma Master, your miner has earned ten miners. He must have been feeling so proud. <laughs> and, um, and Jesus said to him, well done, good and faithful servant, you were trustworthy in a very little. So this thing that God has given us, this minor, might seem a very little. And he says, you've got 10, you've multiplied it 10 times, have authority over 10 cities. Wow. And then the guy with five miners, five cities. Wow. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought of it before, but again, we're told that we're going to have a huge amount of responsibility in heaven we're just not all going to sit around with harps. I'm sure there will be wonderful times of worship, but we're going to be actively doing stuff, okay? Paul says, again to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know the saints will judge the world? 
How are you going to judge the world? Amazing. (laughs) Wow. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge in the smallest matter? Because there was lots of fussing going on in the Corinthian church. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So heaven is going to be quite an interesting place, I think. And clearly, the responsibility we're given in heaven, because the 10 guy got 10 cities and the 5 guy got 5 cities, is, going to, is affected by what happens down here. It's almost like we're in... I often think of this place as kindergarten anyway. The main event is later. School's later. <laughs> but we're in kindergarten, and God's training us up into his ways so that, you know, in heaven, I don't know, you know, we fit in and we maximise our potential there. I, I don't know. I haven't got that really sorted. Okay. I, I, I like what happened to the, the third guy, okay? He, he buried it in a handkerchief. It would be like us taking our minor and putting it in the safe. <laughs> he buried it. And I haven't gone into detail with all the verses connected with this, but I think a lot of what Jesus says to him shows this guy had no relationship with Jesus. He didn't understand God's heart because he calls him a severe man and all of that stuff. And at this stage in, um, in, in the expression of Jesus on the earth, we haven't come to the judgment bit. We've got the grace and the love flowing um, for reconciliation. So I don't think this man really understood about Jesus. But what Jesus says to him is really, really interesting. And I take heart from this because he says, why didn't you put it in the bank? You see, you might have a little bit of money and you don't know what to do with it. So you put it, you find the best interest, you go online and Google and you find the best interest and you lodge it in there for a year because you get better interest rates for a year or five years even. And you just go home, you twiddle your thumbs, you sit around, you don't do anything. But while you're not doing anything, that money is growing. And actually, Jesus would have been happy with that. He would have been happy if this guy had just put it on an interest account and got a bit of interest on it. And I was thinking, well, what's the parallel for that, Lord? And I felt God say to me that, you know, we're not, we can't all go to the mission field, but we can support the missionary who goes. We can support the organization that sends Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. We can support people like Sat7 who are producing TV programs that are being beamed into a, an environment and a world that we, we, couldn't, we can't go to and probably couldn't cope with. Okay, so we can use our money really, really wisely. We can put it on account. We can get treasure in heaven by investing it into God's kingdom with little or no effort on our part. Obviously, we can back it up with prayer, and that's wonderful if you do, but even just giving it and going, see you later when you've multiplied all of those people's lives that have been touched, you are going to receive part of the reward for that, which sounds very selfish motivation, but I think it's not selfish, it's just canny. Jesus is just saying, use this world's stuff wisely. You can make your money work for you. Okay. We now come to the last section. So we've dealt with the church and the miners and the rewards, and it's not based on, um, it's, not, it's not about our sins. Those have been dealt with, that's been judged with Jesus on the cross. 
It's, it's what we're doing with the life that Jesus has given us and being motivated by love, serving the church, serving the world. But now we come to the end where Jesus talks about the other group, the people that sent a message after him, we don't want this man to rule over us. Here there is a very sobering message. Jesus says, For these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You know, that passage in Isaiah 61 that we saw, the second half of that verse is the day of vengeance of our God. And if there's anybody listening in the room here today or anybody listening to me online that hasn't sorted out who Jesus is, that hasn't made that decision to trust him for the forgiveness of their sins through his death on the cross. I implore you, I plead with you to be reconciled to God. It's not going to be nice at that point in time. There's going to be much weeping and wailing You need to make a decision for eternity in this life. It says we all die once and face judgment. And once you die, it's too late. You cannot make the decision then. And so I just want you to reflect today, if you're listening to this message, that you are a precious eternal spirit and soul which God made. You didn't make yourself. Evolution didn't make you. You're made by God, and he is your father. Come back to him through Jesus. And if you're uncertain about all of this stuff, I would recommend that you just read um, John's Gospel. I think John's Gospel really explains who Jesus is. The kingship of Jesus comes out very strongly, and his love for you. And just open up your heart and ask God to reveal himself to you. And if you do that honestly, you will find him. You know, sometimes we let, and this came out in the prayer meeting, and it's in my notes, so I am going to mention it. You know, some of us don't go into the kingdom for the most bizarre of reasons. We felt people have let us down. It could be your family. It could be other church members. It could be church members that have gone off the rails. And you think, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. It could be God who you think's let you down. But you are very foolish if you let offence blind you to this stark choice. You know, in heaven, that isn't going to be a reason that is acceptable. Because God sent his son to die for you. He made the ultimate sacrifice. He sent his one and only son. If you have children, just think about that. God took his precious son and enabled him to come to, to the earth through the virgin birth and live amongst us and feel what we feel and yet become, be sinless and yet allow himself to be mutilated and to die on that cross. And then that wasn't the worst of it. The worst of it was then all the sin, your sin, my sin, came on him physically. No wonder his face was marred more than any man. No wonder God 
made it dark so that we couldn't see his suffering. This is what God did for you. And you really have to make a choice about that now. I'm just going to pray for you. Father God, if there's anybody in this room or there's anybody listening online who has not made a decision for Jesus, Father, I pray even now, Lord, you transcend time and space, that even now there will be a witness in their hearts, Lord God, that you are real and that you love them. Father, just blast away any offence that's in their lives, any reasons that they are making. They're putting up as what we call them, straw, whatevers, to, to just um, avoid this, com- this confrontation with you. They've put themselves in a corner. Father, remove all their excuses and just help their hearts to be exposed for that moment to the reality of who you are and that you love them so much that you want them to come back to you. Amen. Okay, so just finishing this last um, verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever, whatever you've done, it doesn't matter, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for listening. Amen.